And what does God say in Genesis 17 in his covenant with Abraham? He says that if you don't obey your end of the covenant, you'll be cut off. You'll be divorced. God himself divorces people all the time. This is why it's wrong for Christians when they say that there is no legitimate biblical ground for divorce. Yes, there is. God did it to Israel. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Mark chapter 10. This morning, Jeff and I were looking over the bulletin and I was pointing at the title of the message, which uh, I entitled The Divorce Debate. Jeff looked at me and he said, what's that? (laughs) What is the divorce debate? And I said, well, you're just going to have to wait. But it's here, Mark chapter 10, reading beginning in verse 1. Speaking about Jesus, it says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated as we look to him in prayer briefly before we look at our passage together. Father, for the word that we are about to receive, we pray three things. Number one, for your grace to receive it, for your strength to accept it, and for resolve to obey it. We pray these things for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen. Just over 100 years ago, a sociologist who was a professor at Harvard by the last name of Sorokin wrote a book in which he was describing the disintegration of the family among the American civilization. He pointed out the statistic that 10% of divorces in 1910, or 10% of marriages in 1910, rather, led to divorce. Of course, by 1948, that percentage had risen to 25%. Sorokin's claim in his book was that 10% of marriages ending in divorce 
was enough to ruin the American civilization. Today, more than 50% of marriages end in divorce. And of course, you add to the reality of divorce, the reality of cohabitation, and same-sex civil unions or same-sex marriages, and it's not an exaggeration to conclude that we are in a more severe family crisis than we were 100 years ago. There have been, if we are honest about our society and we are honest about culture, many contributors to divorce. For one, moral laxivity in our culture where we have been desensitized to sin, that plays a part. Feminism has played a huge role. Humanism, the proliferation of the homosexual agenda, entertainment, Hollywood, pornography, all of that. But then you cap that off with the fact that almost every state has what we call no-fault divorce laws, essentially making divorce almost as easy as marriage. It is no surprise that the vast majority, the vast percentage of custody battles, or we could just say civil cases are custody battles, divorces, That is what consumes the civil courts of our land. But by making those simple observations, you might assume that divorce is simply a problem of modern man. Or perhaps that divorce is simply a problem of modern America. Think again. Divorce has been around since almost the beginning. In fact, we know from Genesis, we read it, that marriage is a God-ordained institution. Divorce is not. However, in the Bible, divorce is both recognized and regulated very early in the Bible, as early as Deuteronomy chapter 22. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 24 that Moses allows divorce by regulating it. He stops short of endorsing it on the one hand, which means that we should not view divorce lightly. But on the other hand, God doesn't ignore it. Moses doesn't ignore it but actually legislates for it, actually permits it under very ordered and lawful and exceptional circumstances. This has made divorce a debatable matter. Pastors and elders have struggled through the years on how to minister to people who are going through marriage crises. But the Bible tells us that if God does not ignore the matter of divorce and if God permits divorce, under certain circumstances, legislatively, then while on the one hand pastors and elders are neither to encourage or endorse divorce, they are nevertheless not to ignore it, and by the Spirit's enabling and the Bible's directives are ordered by God to regulate it among God's people according to biblical principles and not cultural norms. R.J. Rushdooney, in his first volume on the Institutes of the Law said this, and I quote, Certainly divorce is part of a sinful order, but divorce is no less a right, for that matter, in dealing with that sinful order. Warfare is also a part of the sinful order, but no less right under godly circumstances, and the right of the sword is by no means withheld merely because war belongs to the state of sin. He goes on to say, Hardly 
Any aspect of our lives can be separated from the sinful order in any full sense. But the law speaks to covenant keepers in a sinful world, not to men in heaven. And that is why the law permits divorce in certain circumstances. We are not residents of heaven, yet we are residents of a sinful world. And the fact that the Bible does not prohibit all forms of divorce is made very clear in the example of Moses, that the, who the Bible describes as a just man who was not condemned for originally deciding to divorce Mary before he found out all of the facts. So I say all of this at the beginning to say this, you cannot oversimplify divorce. There is a debate about it because the issues surrounding marriage and remarriage and divorce are somewhat complicated. We can say, Malachi 2.16, that God hates divorce. But that's not all we can say because Jeremiah chapter 3 makes it clear God himself says and defends himself that it is his holy prerogative to divorce Israel due to her spiritual adultery. So God hates divorce, yes, but God hates the sin leading to divorce more. And how do I know that? Because he provides exceptions to allow for divorce in some cases. God hates divorce, yes, but he hates the sin leading to divorce. He also hates the consequences that flow to the children that have the outworking of that divorce. He hates divorce obtained on unbiblical grounds, but he does not hate all divorce or he would be hating his own actions in divorcing Israel and he would be hating his own laws that permit divorce under certain circumstances and legislate for proper divorce proceedings God hates divorce yes but he neither hates all divorces in the same way nor does he hate every aspect of divorce that is important to affirm because it teaches us that God doesn't hate those who have been divorced and therefore neither should we as Christians interestingly there are all sorts of passages in the Bible. We call them vice lists. Places like 1 Corinthians 6, Revelation chapter 22, or for example, Galatians chapter 5, the deeds of the flesh. All of these lists list sins that perhaps lead to divorce, such as selfishness, envy, slander, drunkenness, idolatry, murder, homosexuality, sins that often lead to divorce, but none of those lists actually list divorce. Slander, and lying is considered by God is more egregious sins than divorce. So divorce, let me go on record as saying, is not the unpardonable sin. Our goal as Christians is to be biblical, not legalistic. We aren't to try to be more biblical than Jesus was. Jesus addressed the issue of divorce with clear terminology the reality is that those in Jesus's culture struggled to understand the divorce debate and many today struggle to understand that as well we can begin with before the fall before the fall the first married couple was free from conflict as they worked together not against each other and fulfilling the cultural mandate Genesis 1 God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion they did that with a degree of marital harmony 
After the temptation, however, this perfect union, as you well know, was broken by sin. The fall directly impacted the world, and it directly impacted the world by directly impacting marriage to begin with. First of all, Eve had failed to seek Adam's headship and his protection regarding the temptation, and instead she influenced, and we could even say manipulated the man to sin against God. She sought to submit to another head, namely Satan, while Adam relinquished headship and caved to her sinful wishes, overturning the divine order. Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 11.3 that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. He's clear in, in verse 7 that man is the image of the glory of God and the woman is the glory of man. He's clear in 1 Corinthians 11.8 that man was not made from woman but woman from man. And he's clear from 1 Corinthians 11.9 that neither was man created for woman but woman was created for man. And so the first sin was the result of a subverting of God's order that the husband was to protect the wife and the wife was to submit to her husband. None of that happened the right way and that's what resulted in sin. The very first sin resulted in a divorce of sorts, a separation, a separation of man from God a separation of man from the natural order, and most importantly for our discussion this morning, a separation of the man from the woman. The result of the fall was catastrophic. I read earlier in our public reading of Scripture, Genesis 3.16, here was the curse of God because of sin. He said to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That was the curse. And that word desire there. It is not the original desire that God gave Eve pre-fall, which was to submit to Adam, to yield to his headship, to work with him as his helpmeet, to provide sexual fulfillment for him, and to provide children for him. No, that word desire in Genesis 3.16 is the word that is used to describe controlling someone's life. No longer helping Adam by submitting to him, but by subverting and overturning his authority and trying to control him. As a matter of fact, this is so clear that if you turn with me in Genesis, to Genesis chapter 4, we see this illustrated. I also read this verse to you, but I want you to, to see it again. In Genesis chapter 4, this sort of desire is illustrated and personified in Cain's murder of Abel, his brother, Adam and Eve's kids. Before that murder was actually committed and Abel's life was maliciously and jealously taken, God gave Cain a warning. And he said to him in verse 7, If you do not do well, the end of verse 7, sin is crouching at the door, and here's the phrase, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Its desire, what desire? The desire of sin is in you. That wicked desire to murder your brother is going to control you. That's the same word that is used in Genesis 3.16 to describe the desire, the cursed desire of the woman. Your desire will be for your husband. Your desire to control him, usurp God's authority, usurp God's law, usurp God's divine order in the creation, to control someone else's very life. And so we can deduce from this that hatefulness and bitterness, we could say murder within the heart is the cursed result that applies to the wife because of the fall. For Adam's part and every husband after, 
God said to him, or said to the woman, that he would rule over her. He would try to rule over the wife. This is not ruling over her in the pre-fall condition, which was biblical, biblical headship and protection. No, this is a type of sinful rulership that dominates. It is man in his cursed state as a result of the fall that tries to control the wife as a defense mechanism against her usurpation of his authority and her desire to manipulate him. And that is what goes on in every single marriage. It doesn't matter how sanctified your marriage is this morning. That goes on because you live in a fallen world. And those, my dear friends, are the seeds of divorce. God did not institute divorce. He instituted marriage. But the way that you live out your relationship with your spouse, if you live it out in a sinful way, could lead to divorce. And that divorce will be your fault. The seeds of divorce are the seeds of male chauvinism and feminism. God established marriage and the seeds of what we witness in a marriage ceremony were two people come together before God and other witnesses acknowledging the joining together of this man and woman. But Adam and Eve established the seeds of what we witness today in divorce proceedings where the same two, man and woman, sue and settle over possessions and custody. So that it's inescapable that divorce is a reality only because sin is a reality, but divorce is a reality. And here in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to be crucified. And as you well know, he is making strong claims for radical discipleship. But here in verses 1 through 12 of Mark chapter 10, he is moving beyond radical discipleship in the realm of personal piety. He spoke, as we saw last week, about the idea of cutting off body parts if necessary to enter the kingdom of God, cutting off body parts in order to pursue individual holiness. But now Jesus speaks about radical discipleship within the category of the home, that how you treat your spouse is a matter of personal piety and spirituality. In fact, to the degree that you pursue Christ will be the to the degree you pursue a godly marriage Jesus tells us here in chapter 10 first of all how we are to view our marriage and how we can be radical disciples in our marriage in verses 1 through 12 then in verses 13 through 16 he describes how we are to view children and then in verses 17 through 31 how we are to view our possessions how we are to view marriage, how we are to view children, how we are to view our possessions. Do we want to be radical disciples of Christ? Then we must think through these issues and Jesus begins with marriage. Jesus lays before us a very high view of marriage as it relates to Christian discipleship and in doing that, he sets the record straight on the divorce debate. And here we see three parts to the divorce debate in Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. First of all, we see the question regarding divorce, verses 1 and 2. Secondly, the correction regarding divorce, verses 3 through 9. And third, the application regarding divorce, verses 10 through 12. Let's begin in verses 1 and 2, where we see, number one, the question regarding divorce. And what I want you to see here in verses 1 and 2 is very simple. The whole question about divorce arose from the context of Jesus' preaching as he traveled. Notice verse 1 says, And he, that is Jesus, left 
there. Where did he leave? Well, he left the city of Capernaum, which was his headquarters for his Galilean ministry. That ministry has ended. He's now in his retirement ministry. But as we've noted so many times before in the weeks preceding, Jesus has returned to Capernaum for a quick visit to grab his belongings to head to Jerusalem to be crucified. So he's leaving Capernaum. Where does he go? It says he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. So Mark is fast forwarding here because he's revealing to us that first Jesus went to the region of Judea. Neither Matthew nor Mark record the things that Jesus did in this region, some six months perhaps of ministry. And Mark just sort of glosses over that, so does Matthew. But uh, Mark goes on to say that he also went beyond the Jordan. So after ministering in Judea, the region of Judea, for about six months, which isn't recorded, Jesus then went straight to the region of Perea, which is described by Mark simply here as beyond the Jordan. But what I want you to note, more importantly than the geography and the itinerary of Jesus, is that Mark goes on to point out something very important. It says, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. This was always Jesus' custom. His emphasis was always the preaching of the word of God that dominated his ministry to the detriment of other things. That had to be the way that it was because he had to get the message of God out. And Mark is clear here that this was his custom to teach the people, to instruct them in the things of God, to preach to them as the crowds gathered. Now that word custom is an interesting Greek word. It's derived from the Greek word ethos where we get our English word ethics. It refers to the religious habit of someone, the custom of something, and Mark is pointing out that Jesus adopted the religious habit, the religious custom, the religious ethic of always teaching from the scriptures. In fact, for our discussion this morning, we could say that the ethics of Jesus regarding marriage and divorce were always derived from scripture. And when the religious leaders actually ask him the question, after his preaching, he goes right back to preaching, right back to the word of God. That's where his ethics were. His custom was to follow the word of God. And beloved, I want you to understand this morning that your ethics regarding divorce also cannot be separated from scripture. You cannot follow societal norms. You have to follow what the Bible says. And if Christians, Christians, never mind pagans, Christians followed what the Bible says about divorce, and our custom and habit and ethic was what the Bible said, then I dare say the societal custom would not be divorce because Christians would have an influence on the society. And I don't know what Jesus taught on this day. Verse 1 doesn't say, but whatever it was, I'm inclined to think it had something to do with marriage, something to do with the home, something to do with family. Why do I say that? Because of the question that is asked in verse 2. Notice your Bibles. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now Mark makes clear the question about divorce, notice carefully, is not rooted in pure motives. First of all, he reveals this to us because of who asked it, the Pharisees. Why they asked it, verse 2, in order to test him. And third, what they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They're posing the question from the negative, not the positive. They're not asking, how do I keep my marriage together? They're asking, how can I get rid of the person that I'm married to? 
the who was the Pharisees, always stalking Jesus with hostile motives, and that has not changed here. You remember back in chapter 2, just to review, verse 16, the scribes and Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They were always dogging his steps, always following him, trying to find some sin or some unbiblical teaching in his ministry. Or or again, uh, chapter 2, verse 24, uh, the disciples are picking heads of grain and the Pharisees were saying to, to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, Jesus wasn't violating the Sabbath, neither were the disciples but the scribes and pharisees were trying to pin him on that following him around chapter 3 and verse 6 the pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the herodians against him how they were to destroy him so now they're conspiring against jesus verse 22 of chapter 3 the scribes came down from jerusalem A, a commission was sent to tell the people that he's possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons? I mean, this is a slander campaign. Or or what about chapter 7 and verses 1 through 5, when the Pharisees gathered with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem and other council, they saw that some of the disciples were with hands defiled, that is unwashed, and they tried to pin Jesus on that. Or chapter 8 and verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. That's exactly what's happening here. This question is not asked with pure motives because of who is asking it, the Pharisees. And why did they ask it? Notice again verse 2, to test him. They wanted to trap Jesus in order to discredit him in the public's eyes. And what did they ask him? Well, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now that's a loaded question. But for one thing, Jesus had already taught on this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. But secondly, they're in the region of Perea. Perea was ruled by Herod Antipas. You remember what happened last time we spoke about him in chapter 6. John the Baptist confronted Herod Antipas. Why? Because he was having an affair. He was committing adultery. And then he divorced his first wife to marry Herodias. And John the Baptist confronted this civil magistrate on that issue and said he was in sin. And what did it result in? Well, it resulted in Herodias usurping the authority of her husband, Herod, and convincing him to kill John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's head was lopped off. That happened in this region. And perhaps the Pharisees are asking Jesus this question because they want Jesus to come out with very strong language against divorce so that maybe he also will lose his head. But not only that, this was a loaded question because you probably well know there was a long-standing theological debate among two schools of rabbis, the school of Shammai on the one hand, the conservatives, and the school of Hillel and his disciples, that would be the school of liberals. The school of Shammai and his disciples believed that divorce was permissible only on grounds of sexual infidelity. The school of Shammai, uh, Hillel, excuse me, and his disciples, well, they believed that virtually anything a woman did was grounds for divorce. For example, if she oversalted your food, it was grounds for divorce. If she burnt your food, it was grounds for divorce. If she talked loud enough for the neighbor to hear, it was grounds for divorce. Or if the husband found someone prettier than his spouse, it was grounds for divorce. And worst of all, if you spoke bad about your mother-in-law, your husband could divorce you. That was the school of Hillel. 
well, the conundrum that they're trying to create, the trap, the test, was creating for Jesus a sort of trap that he couldn't get out of because no matter what he said, they thought, he would divide the listening crowds to turn against him. The popular view, by the way, was from the school of Hillel. That's what most Jews held to. So if Jesus appeared to support the liberal view of divorce, he would drive away the more conservative people, the ones more likely to believe in him. And if he came out appearing as if he supported Shammai and his followers, that is the conservatives, then he would estrange the women who made a large segment of his following, made up a large segment of his following, and um, most of the Jews, the populace of Judaism, would turn against him. But what I want you to note is that the way a question is framed often reveals the motives behind asking it. And I alluded to this before. The Pharisees are not seeking to honor God and his law. They're seeking how far they can go, right? They're seeking how close they can get to sin. How how far they can, can, or how close they can get to sin, not how far they can stay away from it. That's the best way to put it. They're looking for loopholes and excuses by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Instead of asking, how can a man and woman ensure their marriage stays intact? You see, those are two separate questions. And one reveals what you're after, divorce. The other reveals what you're after, that is a godly marriage. They weren't after having a godly marriage. And by the way, Jesus wasn't concerned with popular polls and public opinion. He was concerned with the truth. So good luck on that trap, Pharisees. But there is a question that we need to ask ourselves. Do you ask Bible questions to justify a sinful belief or practice? Or do you ask Bible questions because you want to honor the Lord, you want to honor his law, and you want to honor truth? Say, well, I'm asking a question. Isn't that revealing the fact that I'm humbled? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Sometimes the most prideful people are those that ask questions. But the questions they ask, they already have the answer to, and they go to the Bible to find what they're looking for, to justify what they believe and to justify how they want to live. They are a law unto themselves. And if that is you this morning, you're a Pharisee. And you need to repent from that and turn from that. God's grace is there for you, but don't follow the path of the Pharisees. Ask honest questions with the openness of wanting to know the truth. And Jesus helps those who might be among the crowds who are wondering, are there any legitimate grounds for divorce? Because that is a valid question when asked the right way. And so we move from the question regarding divorce, number one, to the correction regarding divorce, verses three through nine. We move from the question regarding divorce to the correction regarding divorce, And Jesus, what I want you to see here, avoids the trap by going straight to the authoritative source of Scripture that he constantly preached and from which he just came from preaching. And he does this first by showing on the one hand the negativity of divorce in verses 3 through 5, and then secondly the positivity of marriage in verses 6 through 9. Notice first with me the negativity of divorce Jesus speaks to. And in fact, Jesus doesn't even answer their trap question, but instead counterattacks, I love this, with a question of his own. Verse 3, he answered them, not with an answer, but a question. What did Moses command you? 
They're trying to test him and he tests them. They question him. He questions them. They try to trap him. He gets out of the trap and he traps them. They fall right into it. Notice verse 4. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now we're going to look at what passage they're referring to that Moses said this in, which is Deuteronomy 24 a little bit later. So don't turn there for right now. Just listen Because what this reveals in their answer in verse 4 is that they thought Scripture supported no-fault divorce. That is, divorce for any reason. In fact, the central phrase in Deuteronomy 24 is this, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, then he writes her certificate of divorce. If she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That's what they were focusing on. Jesus exposes their view by asking a question that led him straight to the text that they used to argue for any sort of divorce. And specifically that phrase, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, that justifies all divorce. How far could that indecency word be pushed? What constitutes something as indecent? The problem the Pharisees was that they did not interpret Scripture within the context. This is a proof text and a pretext for permission to divorce for any reason. So Jesus begins to correct them. Notice in verse 5, And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Simply put, Jesus is saying, Moses, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, provided legislation to regulate divorce. But this is not endorsement for divorcement, as much as it is a restriction of it, Deuteronomy 24, what Moses said. In other words, Jesus is saying God allowed divorce, and he even implemented divorce laws to protect a situation from getting out of control, as he says there, because of, verse 5, your hardness of heart. That's why Moses wrote that. Divorce laws under Mosaic legislation were not meant to reinforce the hardness of man's heart of sin brought about by the fall, but to restrict how far that hard heart could go. And by Moses' day, divorce was so rampant that God graciously, listen to me on that, graciously provided a way to escape a bad marriage through a legislative process that is specific. But the laws that God laid down to prevent divorce, they had twisted into laws permitting divorce for selfish and illegitimate reasons. Going back to Deuteronomy 24 for a minute, that was in the context of covenant keepers who valued the law. That's who it was written to. The Pharisees didn't value the law, even though they said they did. They were always looking for loopholes. So when Moses gives that leeway to write a certificate of divorce, as they say, and to send her away, That was meant to prevent a covenant-keeping, law-abiding man from making a hasty, foolish, selfish decision by getting rid of his wife. It was putting some reasoning to the situation. 
some accountability, and some protection. Because it was a very big step if you divorced your wife and she remarried and was divorced again or her husband died. Deuteronomy 24 says you can't marry her again. So you better think about this. If you do it, if you do it, it's over. More than likely, it's over. It was a big step to restrain marriage, the legislation of Deuteronomy 24. But they used Deuteronomy 24 as a pretext and proof text and permission to divorce any time. All it took was the stroke of a pen. And Jesus is correcting them. That is not the right way to look at it. Now, interestingly, Jesus doesn't quibble with them long about the negativity of divorce other than simply exposing that they had a wrong view of Deuteronomy 24 before he suddenly shifts to move from the negativity of divorce to the positivity of marriage. And we see that in verses 6 through 9. Jesus goes further back than the laws for divorce given in Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis, here in verses 6 through 9. Notice, but from the beginning of creation, Jesus says, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis. It's correct that Deuteronomy 24 provides legislation for divorce, but you misinterpreted that. You took it out of context. So let me go back to Genesis and tell you how much God values marriage because that'll take care of your questions regarding divorce. And I love verses 6 through 9 because here Jesus provides three reasons that marriage between one man and one woman for all of life should be valued by all Christians. Now, it may not be the situation that you're in, and I understand that. Death happens, divorce happens, sometimes for biblical reasons, sometimes for unbiblical reasons. God's grace is enough to cover all of those sins. But if young Christian people begin, not with the question of divorce, but with the question of marriage, and they deduce from Scripture that God has such a high view of marriage, then the question of divorce won't even be part of their vocabulary. Three reasons that marriage between one man and one woman for all of life should be prized. Number one, because marriage is creational. It is creational. Verse six, Jesus says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now he didn't make them male and female to, to then go live their own lives and have their own careers and be independent. He made them, as verses seven through nine clearly say, to be joined together and to be married. It's built into the fiber of a godly society. Marriage is heterosexual marriage because he made male and female to go together, as verse 6 says. It is to be embraced and celebrated. Now, in Matthew 19, 4, the parallel passage to this, Jesus mocks the religious leaders with sanctified sarcasm and their pride because he says to them, have you not read? Have you not read Genesis? That in the beginning, this marriage thing was creational, something that came from the hand of God. But you see, the problem of the scribes and Pharisees is that they prided themselves in knowing the laws and the legislation for divorce, but they shamefully ignored the norms and providence of creation. Verse six is clear. God created what? Male and female. 
as we'll see later, to be joined together in marriage, heterosexual marriage that was instituted by God. And notice, verse 6 is clear that this was true from the beginning of creation. So that Adam and Eve formed the paradigm for marriage, heterosexual, and the pattern, all of life. From the beginning, Adam and Eve, male and female, were created not to live forever as individuals and single, but to be married. Now, there's another thing I want you to see regarding the creation account and verse 6. And that is this. By virtue of the fact that he created one male and one female, that's all that existed for Adam in principle, verse 6 means that divorce is impossible. There's no one else to marry. There's one male, there's one female. And even after the fall, this was the case, right? Even after their marriage was disrupted by Satan, Adam could try and reform Eve's unsubmissive spirit. Uh, he could pray for her, but there existed nobody else for him to divorce her, dump her, and remarry someone else. God didn't even provide that. There was no one. And for Eve's part, there was no other man that existed. They had to work through their problems. She could pray for her husband. She could pray that he'd be a better head and protector, that he would actually be there for her when she needed him. She could pray that God would suppress his now domineering spirit, which he lashed out at her because of her manipulative, sinful heart. But she couldn't divorce him. She couldn't dump him and seek someone else. There was nobody else. Jesus is making that point just by that language. But from the beginning, God created them male and female. He doesn't say males and females. Male and female. Now, singleness, although it is not unbiblical, is not preferable. Because the second thing that we learn about the fact that marriage is between one man and one woman for all of life and that we should value it is not only that marriage is creational, but number two, marriage is normal. Notice verse 7. Therefore, because he created male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is normal. Singleness is not normal, it's exceptional. Now, singleness is biblical. If you're called to that, Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're called to singleness, that's wonderful. And in fact, Paul even goes on to say, I wish that everyone were like me and single because the ministry would be a lot easier. I wouldn't have, have a wife to deal with and children to deal with and all that goes with that. But he also says in that same passage, 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Answer, yes. Then don't seek to be released. It's not a bad thing to be married. It's a normal thing to be married. It's a creational thing to be married. This is the way that God designed it. Because the normalcy is seen in verse 7, a man shall leave his father and mother. Notice it doesn't say a man can leave. It says he shall leave. It is the norm and it is the expectation that a man will leave the authority of his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, creating another family. That is the norm. And notice it says he will hold fast to her. Jesus is quoting Genesis 2.24 
The Hebrew word, by the way, that's used in Genesis 2.24 for hold fast indicates the strongest bond possible. It could literally be translated stick together or stuck. Reminding us of Paul's words, why did he say, are you bound to a wife, don't seek to be released from her? Answer, because you can't rip apart what is glued or stuck together without causing damage. The Pharisees were guilty of ripping apart marriages God had brought together because they reinterpreted Deuteronomy 24 wrongly and instituted no-fault divorce laws in their oral tradition. So the, the vast majority of Jews thought that you could get married today and divorce tomorrow and still be godly and righteous for any reason. And Jesus is blowing that apart. Jesus wants us to see the positivity of marriage, that one man for one woman for all of life is God's best. Marriage, number one, is creational. Marriage, number two, is normal. And marriage, number three, probably the most important of all, marriage is covenantal. Notice verses eight and nine. Jesus goes on to say, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh, and what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They're two, the, the two become one. That's what happens in one's covenant with God. Through Christ, we are united with him. We become one with him. We become one with God. The body of Christ is one. So two in marriage. When two people get married, the two become one flesh. In fact, God doesn't even view them as two. How can you separate What's not two? You'd have to cut it in half and cause damage. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, God has done this. This this is covenantal. This has God's blessing, God's sanction. It's as if heaven itself has spoken when two people get married. And I actually say that at wedding ceremonies. God is speaking today. Heaven is speaking today to say it is a good thing for this man and this woman to be joined together. It is covenantal. The two become one. And how is that oneness illustrated? Well, it's illustrated in children who bear physical and personal qualities of the two parents all wrapped up in one. And it's a marvelous thing to see the blending of two people in one. What is that? That is a gracious illustration by God that this couple is meant to stay together, at least for the sake of those children that reflect the image of those parents. And they reflect not just one, but two. Now, I admit that most of my children look like me. But praise the Lord, they have Corey's personality because we'd be in a lot lot of trouble if not. But Jesus says here that God brings husband and wife together. Verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Don't try to play God. God has brought you together. Don't try to play God and break apart and separate what he has brought together. I think in verse 9 there, The man that is spoken of of verse 9 probably represents the husband or the wife within a marriage that is seeking divorce unlawfully. But there are times when other men or another man, not being the husband or wife of a particular marriage under question, can help in bringing about lawful divorce. The point is is that man is not a law unto himself, but 
Moses was a man, he was the leader of Israel, and he legislated divorce. He helped divorce not be as messy as it could be. And there are pastors and elders in the court of the church that from time to time have to adjudicate or come to a husband and wife and determine are there biblical grounds for divorce. And there are men in in civil society, civil magistrates, judges, lawyers, attorneys that assist husband and wife because there are certain circumstances where legislatively it is permissible according to the Bible. We're going to get to that in a moment. But before we do that, I want you to do something we've never done at the church. I want you to take your Trinity Psalter and I want you to turn with me We've never done this during a sermon that I know of. Turn with me to the Westminster Confession. And I want you to look with me at chapter 24. Chapter 24 of the Confession of Faith. You'll find it on page 934. And I want to look at Article 6. What God has joined together, man should not separate. That is man being the husband or wife trying to separate themselves. But sometimes a third party has to come in. And that third party has to be a man. Because God's not going to speak from heaven on what you're going to do in your marriage. So what do we have here? Article 6, page 934. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly, to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage. So man is so corrupt that he tries to study arguments. The corruption of man is so bad that he's apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those God has joined together. There's all sorts of questions. Is it legitimate for me to divorce my spouse? Well, you're beginning with the wrong question. Yet, nothing but adultery or sinful, willful desertion, as can uh, in no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate, is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in and not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. It's that ending part that the persons concerned, the husband and wife seeking a divorce, are not left to their own wills or their own discretion in their own case. And then the middle part, that sometimes the only way to remedy this thing is by the church, that is, pastors or elders, or the civil magistrate, or both. In which case, that third party comes in to assist in the situation. However, it is interesting to me that the Bible gives more detail regarding divorce proceedings than wedding ceremonies. And Deuteronomy 24 helps us. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. I told you we were going to come to it. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Divorce is seen here as a formal and legal act with third party accountability. And it really contains three steps that the Pharisees obviously overlooked. Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. Here's the first step. There has to be a written bill of divorce. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, 
And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house. She departs out of the house. And on and on it goes. Here it says there has to be a written bill of divorce. Why? Well, as I said earlier, this protects the one who is receiving this bill of divorce from being on the receiving end of false accusations or a misunderstanding. The point of writing out the reason for the divorce is that that requires forethought, premeditation. It's not hasty. And that it's a deliberate legal act. It's a headache. You have to jump through some hoops to do it. Do you really want to do it? Because it's not going to be fun for anyone involved and it's going to take a lot of time. You see, God's being gracious with his law. If you want what you're asking for, you can get it, but you have to follow these three things. And if you don't follow them, you can't get it. And even after you get what you asked for, you could end up regretting this. So first, there has to be a written bill of divorce. Second, the bill must be served. Notice that in verse 1, he writes the certificate of divorce and he puts it in her hand. Now that's quite a personal thing. This is not some registered letter. You want to divorce your spouse, write out the reason and hand it to her. Have a conversation as to why you're doing it. Look her in the eye. Be a man about it. Be a woman about it. The point is that when this happens, the offended party has time to reflect. And if she's done something or he's done something sinful, maybe they repent. Or maybe this causes time to happen. It's where talk goes around and now a friend comes in or an elder comes in to intervene, to mediate. Deuteronomy 24 assumes a godly covenant keeper who has a sensitive conscience to the life-altering prospect of divorce. That's the point. It's not viewed lightly. So the bill is written, the bill is served, and then the third step is the person divorced must be sent from the home. Notice that. He puts it in her hand and he sends her out of the house and she departs. So immediately the home is ruptured. Everything is public. The notice is public. It's handed publicly. More than likely the children are there. The home is ruptured. She leaves. And history even tells us that perhaps these bills of divorce, we have some of them in writing. Some of them had Hosea 2.4 that said in part, she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Those are strong words. After saying she is, now you're saying she's not? What does that say about you? See, this is a serious matter. The point of Deuteronomy 24 is to drive home the permanent quality of divorce once it's finalized. It's served as a legal process with a public record that can become, that can be brought back to the person because they're not allowed to remarry the person they divorce if that person is divorced the second time or the second spouse dies. Here's the point. Only God, through his law, can dissolve a marriage. God institutes marriage, and only God can dissolve it. You can't hastily just choose at your own discretion for any reason you're going to divorce your spouse. If you think there's a biblical ground, you first go to the pastors and the elders of the church. They are the third party that helps you think through this biblically. And in some cases, you shouldn't get divorced unless the church leaders say that it's biblical. Otherwise, you're in sin and can be brought up on grounds of church discipline. See, there's an ordered process for how this works. This is not an individual thing. So let me say what I said at the beginning. God hates divorce, not because there are never legal grounds for it, 
but because he loves marriage as a creational, normal, and covenantal union. Divorce laws are not an indication of God's love for divorce, but his love for marriage and his desire for people to think through what they're getting ready to do because it causes devastation. There is a sin behind every divorce, but not every divorce is sinful. All divorce is the result of sin, but not all divorces are sinful. But this much is true. Marriage is a covenant, not a societal custom. So there's a proper process to follow that involves a third party, that involves accountability, that involves reflection, that involves wisdom and counsel, and even the authority of church leaders and civil magistrates. And in fact, I'll make this one last point before we move on to the final point. The term divorce literally means cutting off. And what does God say in Genesis 17 in his covenant with Abraham? He says that if you don't obey your end of the covenant, you'll be cut off. You'll be divorced. God himself divorces people all the time. This is why it's wrong for Christians when they say that there is no legitimate biblical ground for divorce. Yes, there is. God did it to Israel. uh, Moses legislated it. But now the question is, what is it? Well, that leads us to the third point. What constitutes a biblical divorce? Well, we have seen so far the question regarding divorce, verses 1 and 2. Secondly, the correction regarding divorce, verses 3 through 9. Now notice lastly, number 3, the application regarding divorce. Jesus waits to answer the Pharisees' question once they're gone. (laughs) Notice that here in verses 10 through 12. Let me turn back to Mark. And in the house, verse 10 says, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. They're in the house with the disciples. They ask him to clarify things. Now, Mark doesn't record everything Jesus says. But what Mark does record, verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. That is sort of the skinny of it. That is the general rules regarding it. But that's not the final word on it. What Jesus is saying is that remarriage after divorce is an abomination because that's what Deuteronomy 24.4 says. To remarry someone you've divorced after they have been divorced a second time or their second spouse dies, is an abomination. So don't divorce her or him in the first place. But this isn't all Jesus said. If you go back with me to Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said more, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus provides an exception here, on the ground of sexual immorality. Uh, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19, which is actually the parallel to Mark chapter 10. Jesus says it again. Verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, here it is, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. 
The phraseology there, sexual immorality, is uh, the Greek word pornea. It's sometimes translated as fornication. So Jesus is clear, listen to this, that divorcing on grounds other than fornication, pornea, and remarrying results in adultery, moikaya. That's the Greek word for adultery. He's not saying that adultery, moikaya, is the only biblical grounds for divorce. He's saying the only biblical grounds for divorce is pornea, sexual immorality. Now, the word pornea covers a broad range of sins, which include but aren't limited to, number one, homosexuality, Number two, prostitution. Number three, incest. So that the biblical grounds for divorce, according to Jesus, not according to me, according to Jesus, is pornea. Not necessarily moikaya, adultery, although pornea includes adultery, right? But the point I'm making is this is not some extramarital affair that no one knows about where you fell in love with someone else and that's the only ground for divorce. No. Homosexuality, prostitution, incest, a one-night fling, an emotional affair, that's fornication. That's sexual immorality. Now, why and how does Jesus do this? Because Deuteronomy 24 doesn't mention sexual immorality. It simply says, if you find something indecent. Well, the clear and simple answer is that Jesus is helping us understand Deuteronomy 24. He's a commentary on it. What Deuteronomy 24 means is indecency primarily in the sense of sexual immorality or fornication. Jesus is reaffirming the law and he's telling them you've misinterpreted the law because indecency in your mind is divorcing on any whim and for any reason. For some petty and personal dispute. Should hasten to add that some also think it's possible Jesus purposely uses this broad word, pornea, fornication, sexual immorality, to cover the sins in the Old Testament that resulted in legal execution. What we might refer to as divorce by death. Let me give you a couple of examples. Losing virginity before marriage, Deuteronomy 22 says you deserve to die. You deserve to die. That's what the Bible says. You have sex before you're married, you deserve to die. You think adultery is bad, you deserve to die if you have sex before marriage. Bestiality, Exodus 22, you commit that, you deserve to die. Leviticus 20, sodomy, you do that, you deserve to die. Rape. Deuteronomy 22, you do that, you deserve to die. And some people think that Jesus uses the word pornea as an all-embracive term because in Deuteronomy 24, indecency applied to those things. God made you divorce your wife or your husband by killing them when they committed those sexually offensive sins. As I said before, Jesus 
affirms that pornea is biblical grounds for divorce because he divorced Judah because of her hypocrisy. He divorced Israel, that is the northern kingdom, because of her apostasy. He, he divorced Judah because of her hypocrisy. Now, in the Old Testament, God also commands those who intermarried with foreigners and were in a marital union with them to divorce their wives. And the reason for that is because in Old Testament times, when you married a pagan, you were marrying into their religion and your marriage became syncretistic. It became pluralistic. Their gods became your gods. Your gods became their gods. And so God says, we've got to cut the cancer out. We've got to cut the idolatry out. The only way to do it is to cut the idols out. And the only way to do that is to cut your spouses away. Get divorced. So again, don't try to be more biblical than the Bible. Jesus is clear that there are biblical grounds for divorce. There's also another one. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul speaks about another exception for biblical divorce. Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 7. Start in verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That is, you're not obligated to remain married to them. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, how you will save your wife? You know, in Corinth, you had two unbelievers who got married, two pagans. And uh, one converted, the other one didn't. And the question arose, well, what do I do with my unbelieving spouse? Paul says, if they're willing to stay with you, for the sake of peace, stay with them. But if they leave you and they desert you, for the sake of peace, let them go. If they stay, that's a good thing. How do you know um, that um, your husband won't get saved or your wife won't get saved through your godly influence? Your children are already being raised in somewhat of a godly home and are holy and sanctified. But if they leave, if they desert, let them go. And Paul even says you're allowed to remarry. It's biblical. In Corinth, the culture was not pluralistic. So when two unbelieving pagans got married, they weren't entering in any sort of covenant with false gods like Old Testament Israel did when they married pagans. You, you, if you got married in Corinth as an unbeliever, in that society, marriage was separated from religion. It was a lot like our own day. A husband had his gods and a wife had her gods. And they didn't mix them. And that's why some unbelieving spouses, when their spouse converted, remained with them because it didn't interfere with their religion. They could go to the pagan temple and, and, and God actually says that's a fine marriage. It's not ideal, but it's fine. Now don't unequally yoke yourself to someone, 2 Corinthians 6, right? That's sinful. 
It's ungodly to be unequally bound to a pagan. But if you're both pagans and you get married and one converts, your marriage is not automatically null and void unless that unbelieving spouse deserts you. In which case, you can divorce. So it seems to me there are only two biblical grounds that are clear for divorce. Marital unfaithfulness, generally speaking, and desertion. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. In other words, Jesus didn't address this. But Jesus is addressing it through the Holy Spirit as Paul writes this. And Paul is building the application of this weird situation in Corinth between an unbeliever and a believer. He's bringing to bear Old Testament principles. Because in Israel's day, God said, divorce your pagan spouse. And when they were divorced, they left and you never saw them again. And Paul says, if your unbelieving spouse leaves you and you don't see him again, let it be, let him divorce you, you're free to remarry. You're not enslaved. And such is also true if your spouse dies. Romans chapter seven, the law says you can remarry. Jesus says that as well. So both marriage and divorce are based on God's fixed standard of the law. God hates divorce, but he hates the sin that causes divorce more, fornication and desertion. He regulates and legislates divorce, which, listen to this, means that he permits it. He permits it in some cases. Why? Due to the hardness of man's heart. Due to the fact we live in a fallen world. Would you want your son going to war? Well, if it was a righteous cause, you would promote that probably. Does God love war? No. Does he allow war in a fallen world? Yes. And does he use it for his glory? Absolutely. God does the same thing with divorce. Sometimes divorce is biblically allowable because it avoids a more devastating situation. But let me just say this, and I want to be clear on this. You are never obligated to divorce. Fornication happens in your marriage, you're not obligated to divorce. If your unbelieving spouse separates from you or your spouse separates from you, you're not obligated to divorce them. You're obligated to reconcile with them to point them to Christ, to urge them to repent, to call on the leaders of the church, the elders of the church, to, to urge them with you. You are to exhaust every conceivable avenue because the whole trajectory of Scripture is that God hates divorce, but he allows it, but you're going to hate it if you do it, probably. Because from it, no good thing comes. Can you do it? Yeah, in certain situations, but you're never obligated to. Here's what you're obligated to do. You're obligated to forgive, right? You're obligated to forgive. When repentance occurs, you're always obligated to forgive, especially if that repentance is from your spouse. What does Paul say in Ephesians 4? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You mean to tell me that you're gonna be willing to forgive someone who offends you 
who's not your spouse and be kind to them, but you're not going to be willing to forgive your spouse. You know, that statement's made in Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. What is Ephesians 5? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, even in her sin. Husbands, love her. Wives, submit to your husbands, even when they're in sin. Doesn't mean you excuse the sin. You can pray for them. And in some cases, you can divorce them. But that's not what you're obligated to do. Just as in the Old Testament, when marital unfaithfulness occurs through a litany of sins or desertion occurs, a Christian spouse can legislatively divorce their spouse and consider them dead. That's what happened to most Israelites, at least lawfully, when they committed a sexual sin, they could be killed. However, we need to watch how we frame our questions, right? That goes right back to what I said at the beginning. We don't want to be like the Pharisees. Don't try to look for loopholes and excuses. Don't ask the question, is it lawful for me to divorce? Ask the question, what can you do to help my marriage stay intact? That's the right question. That's the humble question. Someone who asks that question is godly. Someone who asks the other question, maybe it's revealing a point of pride. We are to sit under sound biblical teaching prizing our marriages because we recognize them as creational, normal, covenantal. We value marriage. And I, I believe that if we do that for the majority of Christians, that will be one spouse for all of life. But that's not always the case. And we need to make sure that we are upholding all of God's word, not just some of God's word. And we need to make sure that the church is full of divorced people. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We don't make sure the church is full of divorced people by encouraging people to be divorced. But when divorced people come into the church, we accept them, we embrace them, and we love them if they are in Christ and we don't treat them differently. They're already suffering the consequences of whatever decisions they have made, right or wrong, whether it was their fault or not their fault. God hates divorce, but he always hates the sin leading to divorce. And God doesn't hate all divorces equally because some divorces are legally permitted. So don't hate the one that's divorced. And if you're married and you're not happy in that marriage, I have one word for you. Repent. Repent. Seek the face of Christ. Seek help if you need it, but repent of your own sin. Pray for your spouse and you would be surprised how God will work through that. Don't jump to Deuteronomy 24. Don't jump to 1 Corinthians 7. Do all that you can to salvage the blessing God has given you. And when you do that, God will honor your heart. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word and your truth. We could have said so much more. There is so much more to be said. And yet, in these 12 verses, you provided enough for us to think about. Help us to think about these marriages, not in the purely theological realm, but also what it means for our own marriages. Lord, the areas that we need to nurture, the ways that we should work at to love our spouses more, to serve them more. Lord, for the sake of our children, for the sake of the church, for the sake of our witness. Lord, we understand the devastating results of divorce. Lord, we ask that you would preserve the marriages of our church. We pray that you would give comfort from the gospel to those who have been divorced. 
Lord, we pray that their current marriage would be all that it could be to honor you and to glorify you. Lord, we know there's enough grace to go around for all of us, so we trust in you, we lean on you, we depend upon you and your grace and the Holy Spirit's enabling. We pray all of these things in the blessed name of Christ our Savior. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.